Grab your Bibles and turn to John 7. Let's read our text for today that we're going to study. And then we'll send the kids out. So as John 6 ended, we were at the Passover time. And now as we get to John chapter 7, um, six months have passed in between that brief time. And we're at the Feast of the Tabernacles, which takes place in the fall. And so um, we'll be moving to a new section um, today. John 7, let's read one. And we'll go through verse 13 today. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea, that was to the south, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, Not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So six months have passed, and a lot has gone on. To the south, in Jerusalem and the southern part of Israel, The religious leaders are seeking to kill Jesus, so he stays to the north. He continues to do ministry. You don't know all that happens in these six months, but that's where he stays. He stays up to the northern part uh, near the area where he grew up, and he doesn't go to the south. And so look with me in verses 1 and 2, and I want us to go ahead and begin looking at um, our text today. And what we're about to see is the reality of our day and time as well. Um, And so verse 1 and 2 tell us this. So after this, and again, this is... Um, this teaching, feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of John chapter 6. Then there's a great revolt of his teaching about eat, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And, and, and what he meant by that was you've got to take all of me in. You've got to, every bit of me, you've got to take it in for salvation. And they have a hard time with his words. Uh, many of the people that have been following him, they walk away at that time. And so, so a time period of about six months has passed and we're at the feast of the tabernacles. As a matter of fact, in 2020, the Feast of the Tabernacles just finished last week. Um, it finished on October the 13th, and so they are still they still celebrate that, but not as much as what they did um, back in the day. And so this after this phrase, um, he went about in Galilee, but he would not go down to Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, because the Jews, and this is a reference in John's gospel to the religious leaders, they were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So the tension was really, really great at this time. And so Jesus didn't go down. The time was not right, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But the tension was really great, and so he stays to the north because of the attitude of the religious leaders down in Jerusalem. Now, if you were a Jewish male 2,000 years ago, you were required to go to three of the festivals. And particularly if you lived near um, Jerusalem. In the spring, you had Passover, which represented Jesus as coming as the Passover lamb. 
uh, to bear our sin. Fifty days later, this is a bit of trivia. Does anybody know what happens 50 days after Passover? Starts with a P. Acts chapter 2, coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. So Pentecost was a festival that took place um, uh, 50 days after the Passover. It was a foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then in the fall, in October usually, in early October, you had the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles where they would come and they would live in tents for a week and there would be a great celebration that would happen and take place. And it pictures Jesus gathering the harvest and Him coming uh, to dwell among um, His people. And so, again, uh, the, the scriptural basis for the Feast of the Tabernacles is found in Leviticus chapter 23 where um, God gives instructions about that. Let me tell you a little bit about um, the Feast of the Tabernacles so that you and I can kind of get the setting of what's happening. Jesus is going to give two clear pictures. So in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8, both of those two chapters are going to be centered around the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's going to say two things, one in John chapter 7 and one in John chapter 8, that are connected to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles. So every day, a priest would take a golden pitcher, he would go outside of the water gate, and he would dip that into a pool of water, um, and he would fill it up, and he would come back through the water gate. And as he came back through the water gate, the people would, would dance, and they would celebrate, and they would clap, and they would quote out loud a memory verse that they had memorized for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And here's what they would quote, is Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. So as he's carrying the water in the golden pitcher, um, he, they would quote this, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so they were thinking about the salvation that God would give the people. So the priest would come in, he would take that, he would pour that water on the altar. At the end of this feast, on the last and greatest day of the feast, in John seven thirty seven, are these famous words. So it says, And Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast, and he said these words, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so on the last day, he's proclaiming this water that is brought, I am actually this water. And so if you're thirsty, you come to me. Now also in the Feast of Tabernacles, they had four huge candelabras that burned 10 gallons of oil. And so they burned during the day, they burned at night. And so as the people were sleeping in tents in and about Jerusalem, you could see from the Mount of Olives, you could see from Bethany, you could see these huge flames in the city of Jerusalem. When the feast was over, they would, they would extinguish these four huge candelabras and, and, and they would go dark. And that would happen in John chapter 8. And so you can't miss this, and we'll talk about these when we get there. So after the candles are out, kind of commemorating the, Him leading them by fire and the cloud by day, Jesus tells them on the flip side of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And again, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So as the city went dark and the candles went out, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And so these two ideas flow through John 7 and 8. It's going to take us a few months to kind of walk through those, but we need to need to keep that in mind. That's what Jesus is getting at and aiming at here. But the first thing I want us to just talk about this morning is this. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. 
So in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to have a family. I know you don't have a kid yet, but, you're, but through you is going to come one. And from your family is going to come one who's going to bless every family on the entire world. And so you've got, you've got the story of just looking at, in, in kind of a real close thing, kind of a microscope at this one man. And then you're looking at this one family. And eventually this one family becomes this great nation. In this great nation, God covenants with them. He gives them his sacred words. He loves them. He pours his, his heart out for them. He, he blesses with them. He has covenanted with them. Um, again, he gives them his sacred promises, his word to these people. He tells them he's going to send a Messiah to rescue them. And then, what? Now, this one that he's promised, he has come, he's walking in the land, and they say, no, thank you, we're not interested in you. And they reject him. And so I want us to see the gravity of what's happening in the text this morning. The one they have been waiting for since the promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. This pagan man at the time was an idol worshiper. And God came and said, I'm going to do something unique in your life. So unique in your life, it's going to bless all the families of the earth. Because speaking of the coming of Jesus. And now Jesus has come. And the people to whom should have been ready for Jesus are rejecting him. And so Jesus, the tension is so great, he's having to stay to the north and not come to the south because they want to kill the Messiah. They want to kill God in a body who has come to rescue them from sin. And I want to, I want to just remind you and I of this before we move on to point two. We live in a day where things have changed, have they not? Dramatically changed. But there's one thing that we should not be shocked of, but we, I think, hear in America are a little more shocked about this, but we shouldn't. It's, and we're shocked because we've not really ever experienced it before. Here's the reality. The world for a long time has hated the Son of God. We haven't experienced that reality in, in great length here in America, but there is a great hating of the Son of God. We love Him. He is important to us. And let me remind you of what is true in our country today there is a remnant that deeply loves jesus and it's many of us in the room this morning we love him we're going to live for him we are passionate about him and then there's the masses of our country that don't want to have anything to do with jesus they want to ridicule jesus they want to ridicule the people of god and then there's a third group that i throw in there and, and it's a confused church it's confused people who don't really know who the biblical jesus is and there's a lot of confusion with that. And so what I want to say to you and I this morning is this, is, is because things have changed so much, and I think they may continue to change, we need to move to a place where we are not shocked that our culture doesn't like people who love Jesus. As a matter of fact, I want you to go to John chapter 15, and I want to remind us of something that Jesus said, and then we'll come back to John chapter 7. So let's read this before we move on to point two this morning. John chapter 15, verse 18. Here's why we shouldn't be shocked. Jesus warned us 2,000 years ago. Hello, he says, hello. Hey, you down the road, everybody who reads this, this is the reality of things. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep, they will also keep yours. But all these things um, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, um, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and both hated me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So let me just say a couple more things before we move forward. Because this is the underlying theme moving forward in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. Just this growing opposition, this growing hatred to Jesus. We Christians in America have, have felt, to be honest, let's just be honest, a, a little bit entitled um, in the history of our country that we have not really been persecuted and had a lot. We may have some people say some words, but we've, we've really not had deep, great pressure upon us like Christians and other, other nations um, have felt. And so sometimes we, and particularly over these last seven months, we are shocked a little bit at the culture's perspective of Jesus and godliness. Um, a year ago at this particular point in time, we had no idea that there would be something that in our vernacular would be called COVID-19, and we would talk about it and, and things. And, and little did we know that, that this time last year that our government and state governments would bring litigation against churches for meeting together. They would find churches for gathering together in the name of Jesus. We could, have not, we could have not seen that last fall. But here we are. It's here. It's come. And so here we see this reality. And we're shocked a little bit and surprised. And I just want to say, I think we need to move on from being shocked. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago these things were going to come. We just haven't seen it and experienced it ourselves. But again, these things are here. Mark sent me an article yesterday, uh, not Mark Donahoe, but Mark Verlander. I should give the right credit. Mark Donahoe doesn't read and stuff, and, and so anyway, so anyway. Um, and so uh, Verlander sent me something. In the U.K., the churches in the U.K. have been put on notice this week that if they continue to speak against homosexuality and they continue to speak against gender issues, then the government is threatening the churches that the government is going to bring litigation against the church for discrimination talk and all of these things like that. Uh, the Netherlands over the, uh, over, over the past month have passed children euthanasia laws that if a kid is suffering, you can just kill them and put them out of their misery. So what usually happens here is what starts there usually makes its way across the pond and, and comes this direction. And I'm not making any bold predictions. I just, I just, listen, I just want us to be awake and quit being so shocked that people hate Jesus and they hate his word and they hate the commandments that we should not be surprised of these things um, anymore. And so, so there is... In the text, a hating of the Son of God among the people who had been waiting for him for thousands of years. And now he's here, 
and they're not interested in him, and they want to kill him. They, they don't want him around anymore. They don't want to hear him talk. They don't want to see him do anything anymore. They just want him dead. And so this hating of the Son of God has been around, and we are seeing it increase in these days. And so I just want to, I just want to remind us that we live in these days, and, it's t- and, and, and so our choice is to continue to live for the glory of Christ. Well, because he was not what they expected, and because sometimes we don't like what God does, guess what we do? We have an agenda. We want to talk to him. Um, hey, God, I want to talk to you. And uh, I want you to change a little bit, and I want you to do a few things that I want you to do. And so his brothers, who have grown up with him, uh, have some words for Jesus. So here's something I want to encourage everybody in the room this morning. If you have family members in your life who have career advice for you, and they don't walk with the Lord, and they've got a lot of opinions and stuff, I would encourage you to be very cautious of people who don't really have God's agenda in line for you to have advice. So let's look and see what career advice Jesus' brothers have. So look with me in 3 through 5. So his brothers, let me just stop it, look up here for, just for a second. So in Roman Catholicism, if you grew up in that, you know this, they have a teaching that says that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was always a virgin. Um, the, the problem with that is the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, he had sisters, and so Mary and Joseph um, had other children. They had, she had, they had sons, and they had uh, sister, uh, daughters. And so Jesus had sisters, and he had brothers, and that's who is talking to him here. Notice that the word brothers and disciples are different. So we're not talking about the same group. We're talking about two separate groups. These are Jesus' half-brothers, and they have some advice for him. All right, here we go, John 3, 7, 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here. And go to Judea, go south, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And now look at five. For not even his brothers believed in him. So, so here we are. We've got, we've got Jesus' half-brothers. They have grown up with him. And they have watched him. They should have known better. So sitting around the Mary and Joseph house at tables that Joseph and Jesus built, they would have been eating. The brothers would have heard the stories of the, of the angel coming and speaking to Mary. This would have been a familiar story among the family about Jesus. Now, the brothers and sisters, and particularly the brothers, because that's who we're talking about here, they had a perfect brother. No, I mean they had a perfect brother. Not, oh, why can't you be more like your older brother, like parent we say to our kids, you know, watch your older sister, watch your older brother. No, no, they had a perfect brother. He never talked back to his parents. He made his bed. He didn't have to be told to make his bed. He just, Grant, he just made his bed, Grant. He did that. He just cleaned the dishes. Your mom's been secretly talking to me. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Not really. Some of y'all sometimes don't laugh at stuff like that. I'm really joking when I'm doing this. I'm not like, okay, okay, calm yourself. Okay, all right. So they have a perfect brother. They should have known that there's something different about him. Now I want you to notice what they say. If, did you notice? If you do these things, 
why don't you go down to headquarters in Jerusalem? And why don't you go do it in front of everybody? You know, the Feast of the Tabernacles is about to happen. People are coming from everywhere. Why don't you just set up shop right in the middle of Jerusalem, right there at the temple, and do all your stuff that we hear that you're doing? Notice this. The brothers had not taken the time to do what? Go to a city where Jesus is ministering. They've not seen him heal a lame person. They've not seen him open the eyes of the blind. They've not seen him cast out a demon. And so notice what they say. If you do these things, you ought to go down to Jerusalem and do them in front of everyone. And so they're like, Jesus, if you really want to make a splash of things and really capture all of this talk that we're hearing about you, and if all this stuff that we're hearing is true, you should go down there and make a big splashy show in front of everyone. The problem with this idea is it's right in line with Satan. Do you remember one of the temptations Satan gave? He took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the city and said, hey, throw yourself off and make a big splashy show because um, God's not going to let you fall onto the rocks and, and, and die that way. He's going to send his angels to capture you. And Jesus wasn't going to do that because that's not the way he was going to come and die. But Satan tempted him to make a big splashy show of things and let the angels come and rescue Jesus. And so the brothers are in thinking in line with Satan about go down and make a big splashy thing. They are, watch, pushing their agenda on the Son of God. Now, we don't do that because we've mastered things in the year 2020 as Christ followers. We don't ever want to push anything on the Son of God. We don't want to tell God what he, what he ought to do. But in case we did, I got five things that maybe we might do, okay? So let me give one of them. Here's the first one that I think sometimes we do. And this is popular today. It is to ignore or desire to change the meaning of the Word of God. And it's very prevalent today. You hear this talk in progressive Christianity. Well, you know, that, the culture 2,000 years ago was kind of like this. That really doesn't apply to, de- to today's time. And so here's the problem with that statement. So how many of those things do you throw out? Because our culture is different 2,000 years later. Here's the thing. You can't throw out anything. So when the Bible talks about this or he talks about that, just because 2,000 years ago in the writings of Paul, the culture was like that, we can't throw those things out because then you begin to try to unravel something that, that cannot really be unraveled, but we need to, need to stay away from it. And so there's a, there, there's a very popular push in our day and time with progressive Christianity to ignore the desire to change the meaning of the word. And I believe very few people today are asking for the ancient paths. And we've got to get back there. It's got to be where we stand. Jeremiah wrote these words. This is Jeremiah 6.16. I want you to listen to the contrast here. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Give an examination. Look around. Stand by the roads and look and ask. As you stand there, ask, what are the ancient paths? Where should we walk, God? What should we do? And, and, and where is the good way? And once you find it, Jeremiah writes, walk in it. And when you walk in it, you'll find rest for your souls. And then Jeremiah concludes these words as verse 16 concludes. 
says, but they, the people said, we will not walk on it. We're not, we're not going to do that. We don't want rest for our souls. We want to continue to just fight and, and do our own thing and, and to live in control of our own lives. And I believe one of the things that, listen, we've got to crush in us is this idea of ignoring the truth of God's word or desiring to change anything about his word. Here's a second one, and it is rampant with when Christian circles today. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be happy. And so you need to pursue God in such a way that life is smooth and life is safe and that there's never any suffering. Now here's the problem with that. If I were to go to every row this morning, to every one of us that loves Jesus, and I were to ask everybody, who in the Bible, what character in the Bible has greatly impacted your faith? What person in the last 2,000 years of church history has greatly impacted your faith? For me, one of those is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I lived in Germany, so I got really interested in, 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 in Dietrich Bonhoeffer and what was going on under Hitler and his faith and, just, and his love for God really greatly impacted, impacted my life. And so every one of us would say, this person, this person. You know, what's, you know what we would find in common with every single hero of the faith that we have? They all went through deep suffering. And as they went through suffering, God cut off those things in their life that weren't of heaven and weren't right and needed to be cut off. And, and we love them because they, they, they maintained their faith in the midst of great adversity. But what we want to do today is we want to demand of God that God, I want to be Christ-like. And the only way to be Christ-like is to go through the crucible of suffering. But I, but I want to be Christ-like, but I want everything to be smooth. <clears throat> this right here reminds you and I that this life that we have came through what? Suffering. The salvation that we got came through suffering. As a matter of fact, Jesus experienced this himself. Listen to these words. This is Hebrews chapter 5. They are incredibly powerful. Listen to this. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 8. In the days of Jesus' flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How did he do that? Did he go, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. How did he pray? Here's how he prayed. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I want you to picture that. Jesus just on the ground pleading with his father loud loud crying tears coming down pleading with his father who was to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence now listen to these words and although he was a son jesus he learned obedience from what he suffered that's what hebrews 5 8 says, and although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Listen, just going to be real honest this morning, and this is a statement I'm just going to say to Doke. If it applies to you, let it be applied to you. I think we really, a lot of times, don't want to be like Jesus. Because we want the smooth path when the Scripture's clear. 
that if you're going to be like Jesus, it's going to take us through the crucible of suffering. I look across this room, and I know a lot of your stories. I see James and Annette in the room, and they have a daughter who, for over the years, we've prayed for Audrey. She's had to have half her brain removed, and she consistently still has seizures. And I, and I think of your daughter, Lauren, all the time, and I just I can't fathom the strength and what God has done through your daughter and your son-in-law. And I just think of the things that, that, that we would never know and taste of the majesty and the glory of God if we didn't go through the crucible of suffering. And that doesn't mean our God is a cruel God. It meant this, that sin was so awful that it took the Son of God dying and bearing that evil and our sin in His body to grant unto you and I any kind of hope. And so for us to demand of God, God, give me a smooth path, communicates to Him we don't want to be Christ-like. I love the Apostle Paul. He's my favorite New Testament character outside of Jesus. Crucible of fire. Crucible of fire. Whipped. Shipwrecked. He got shipwrecked one time made it to shore, and then got bit by a poisonous snake. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, great day going for you. And Paul just continued to pursue Jesus. And so, church, I just want to remind you and I today that we cannot fight him over the pathway of suffering, longing for a life that's smooth and safe. Thirdly, we must trust him as the answer over anything in the world. Let me take you back to Israel just for a moment. Over 400 years, there was a period of time it's recorded for us in the book of Judges where there was this cycle of they would love God, forget God, um, enemy would come in, he would raise up a mini savior, temporary savior that would come in and rescue them. They would love God and then they just over and over did this. At the end of that, uh, there's a prophet named Samuel. He's got two sons and and they've kind of become the political judges of the land. And can you imagine this? That thousands of years ago, political leaders took bribes and, and did injustice. Does that shock you? Does that shock you at all? Yeah, well, they did. That's what his sons were like. And they were kind of the political leaders at the time. And they were tired of it. So the elder, elders of the land came to Samuel and said, We want a king like all the other nations, we want to be like the other nations. And Sam was like, you really don't want a king. You don't want that. And you want God to be your king. And they're like, no, 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 we, we, we want a king. And so Samuel goes to God and God says, okay, give them, I'm going to give them what they want. They're not going to like it because the king's going to take their sons. He's going to take their crops. He's going to, he's going to do all these things. And they, they, they wanted to be like everyone else and saw if they could just be like others, that would be an answer. So I'm going to get real personal for a moment. Three weeks from Tuesday, something's happening in this country. And I want to remind us that as the election is on our doorstep, that we as Christ followers cannot lose sight that, that longing for righteous leaders is an important thing. So we should long and pray for righteous leaders to be in this nation. But I also want to remind us that Christians throughout history have not always had righteous leaders. And we're in a very strange, unique time in this country. 
And we still have leaders today, by the way, did, did you know this, who take bribes and pervert justice in 2020. It's still around, surprisingly. And so here's a word of caution, and here's a clear reminder for us. Regardless of the outcome of this election, that Tuesday night, the mission of our life and the mission of the church will not change regardless of what happens. It is to live for the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Now, do we have a passionate plea that God would give us leaders who would love righteousness? Absolutely. Plea for that. Vote that direction. But I just, I just want to say this. It may not go the way that some of us in the room want it to go. And if that is the case, we need to be reminded that we don't need to put our faith and trust in man. We need to put our faith and trust in the sovereign Lord. And I know that's maybe a hard word or whatever the case is, but I just, I just want to tell us this morning, we can't push an agenda on him that maybe he's not into. What if what the church needs in America is actually more persecution, not less. I'm not saying I'm bring it on, but if it comes, maybe it's what we need. My point is just simply this. My hope is not grounded in anything here. My hope is grounded in something that is not of this world. It is grounded in Christ. The fourth thing that I think we need to be careful of and we push on him is this. If you notice, I really want to deal with the brothers' idea of making Jesus embrace their agenda because this is an issue for us because it keeps us from walking with him. Here's the fourth thing. We want him to be okay of us having two treasures, not one. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> Jesus told us that do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. And then he told us, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. And so here's the deal, America, America, we cannot love God and money at the same time. Can't love both at the same time. So that's why Jesus taught us, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let that be your treasure, and then He will give all things unto you that you need. And so we, we can't push this idea of, I, God, I, 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 I want the best of both worlds, and to lose perspective of those things. And it's not, okay, it's not bad and wrong to have nice things. It's just bad and wrong to make them our life and to let them take the place of Jesus. And by the way, in 2020, he's still a no on this issue of having two treasures. It hasn't changed. He's still a no, and it's a loving no. It's a no because he loves us and cares for us. Here's the last one. And it was the brother's issue. There was a familiarity of the brothers with Jesus that led to a contempt that they had for Jesus. They kind of looked down on him in a sense of that he, 
He, he wasn't wise enough to go to Jerusalem and do what he needed to do. Contempt is a feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or, does, or it sometimes deserves scorn. They didn't, even, they didn't even care enough to go find out. Was he really doing all these things in Galilee and all these towns and villages? They never left to go find out and see for themselves if this was the case. And so they end up rejecting Jesus, surprisingly, because they were so familiar with him. They just were so familiar, they just couldn't believe any of it were true. Now, two of them, we know for sure, did come around. James, half-brother of Jesus, became the leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote that great New Testament book that we love, those five chapters. Another half-brother of his named Jude wrote this one-page letter, um, very unique things about Jude. Jude must have been the hippie brother, in the sense. He just wrote about some kind of strange doctrinal things about the devil wanting Moses' body and all of this kind of stuff. And Jude just, Jude just wrote some really unique things that aren't found anywhere else. And so two of them really come around. Can you imagine what that must have been like for them when they did come around and go, you know, that's my half-brother, but I've got to bow my life to him. And he's got to become my Lord. He's got to become my Lord, and they do that. All right, we need to move forward here. Here's what happens when we push our agenda on Jesus. And we want him to do what we want him to do. Here's what we do. We don't embrace his time and his leadership with things. And we don't make the most of our days. And so look at, look at verse 6. And so Jesus said to his brothers, they're trying to push him to go to Jerusalem, make a big splash of things. And so he said to them, listen, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Every aspect of Jesus' life was grounded in the timetable of, of his father for him. And so Jesus walked with the father. And so you and I have to adjust to this timetable in our lives. We adjust to what he is doing and what he is allowing. If you have your life mapped out on a calendar, <laughs> I laugh at you. Because it's not going to happen that way. We plan and we, we map out stuff and good luck with that. Think about the trust of Jesus and his father. He's born. Herod tries to kill him. They flee to Egypt. They come back. He starts growing up a house, in a house with a mom and dad. He learns a trade. The son of God in a body learns a trade and becomes a carpenter. And for 30 years, it doesn't look like he ever gave a sermon. He ever did a miracle. And then when the father said, all right, it's time, he stepped onto the stage and he poured his life in ministry for a little over three years into the world. He trusted the father's timetable. So watch, as we wait, I don't know how it's been for you in COVID days, but I have many days said, Jesus, will you just come back? We come back and write and establish your earthly kingdom here and write the world. And I've longed for that coming. And so while we wait, what do we do? Well, we don't push our agenda on him. While we wait, we make the most of our days by not pushing our agenda, but trusting in him and walking in obedience. Moses wrote about this. And Moses knew about suffering. He had about a million people. Can you imagine trying to lead a million people that just grumbled about bread and meat and water and um, 
their living conditions for 40 years. So this is Moses, crucible of fire in his own life. He had murdered an Egyptian. God had worked in Moses' life. In Psalm chapter 90, it's a psalm of Moses, and this is what he writes. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. (sighs) Last breath, last sigh, it's over with. And the years of our life are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80, and yet their span is toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. And then Moses writes, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, Moses says, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Why is there so much lacking wisdom in the church today? Well, Moses tells us before, because there's no fear of God. There's no fear that God's going to bring judgment upon the world because of sin. Because, so we just, we just continue on and we push our agenda or we forget Him or we do whatever it is that we want to do and we forget that God is concerned about righteousness and holiness and He's anti-sin. By the way, He's anti-sin. And He wants and He longs for people to walk in holiness and righteousness. And so Moses Moses just communicates, in light of this reality, make the most of your days. And so in COVID-19 time, what do we do? We make the most of our days as we wait. We're like those virgins in Matthew 25 who get their lamps ready, knowing that the bridegroom's going to come back. He's going to come back. And so we've trimmed our lamps. We've made sure there's oil there, and we are ready. So we live ready for His return. And we must, as we wait, Embrace his timetable, and we must make the most of our days. And then Jesus, just one more time in verses 7 and 8, gives another testimony concerning the world. He's still speaking to his brothers, and he says, The world cannot hate you, it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go on up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast. My time has not yet come. So he just repeats it. And reminds them that the world is this way. This is how the world views them. And he basically tells them, you guys are going to go up and walk into Jerusalem. And nobody's going to even notice you walking in. Nobody knows who you are. I go up there. They're looking to kill me. So you guys go on up. Because they don't view you like they view me. Because you don't even believe in me. You haven't put your faith and trust in me. And so they're not going to be after you. So you go up there. And, and I just want to remind us that to, as believers that. We should not get caught up in our culture, wasting our days, embracing matters that will never enhance our faith or our lives. Let's not waste our lives. So let's move to the last point this morning. So up at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus is the center of the conversation. Everybody's talking about this guy who's gone gone everywhere preaching, healing, Casting out demons. And so he stays in Galilee. The brothers go up. So 9 through 13, look with me there. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. So here's what they were saying. Well, he's a good man. And others said, No. Not a good man. 
He's leading everybody astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Thought about this this week. If you would join me in thinking about this. So brothers go up. I mean, thousands of people are headed to Jerusalem. Still probably coming in because they've been delayed on the trip from wherever they've come from. Heading to Jerusalem to live in the tents and to be a part of the feast of the tabernacles. And Jesus puts on a robe and likely throws his hoodie on. And he's walking beside the people as they're headed to Jerusalem. And he's listening to them talk. Listening to them talk about their anger at Rome. Listening to them talk about their longing for the coming of the Messiah. He may have heard them listening about the sickness of somebody that they love that's a part of their family. And, and just listening to the people talk. I think it probably, if we get some detail on it, was a very tender moment. Him walking in the midst of the people, disguising himself, going up privately in the midst of the people. And I want to say this because I think it has application to our day and time today and it really has application in the text. For three years, Matthew 9, 35 tells us that he went through all of the towns and villages doing two things, teaching and healing their diseases. I want you to think about that. Let's just take Collin County just for a moment. If he went through every aspect of Collin County for three years and you could go somewhere and you could see him cast out demons and heal people. Do you know what Israel was not lacking? Revelation. They were not lacking revelation that the Son of God was in the midst of the people. He went everywhere. And so now everybody that he had gone has come to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And what are they talking about? They're talking about that guy who had come through their towns and villages and taught and healed. So they were not lacking revelation. In 2020 in America, we are not lacking revelation of the Son of God. We're not. It's the information age. You can find information that you want to out there that is biblical, it's true. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life just exhausting the stuff that's out there in internet land that's true of Jesus. We are not lacking revelation. And yet, with all that they had seen, what had things come down to? A lack of faith. They weren't believing and trusting in Jesus. And this group of people, this nation, who back in Genesis 12 got this great promise to their patriarch. In John chapter 8, they're going to say, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus is going to go, no, you're not. Your father's the devil. Your father's not Abraham. And they're going to love that moment when we get there, when he tells them that. And here he is standing in their midst, and they say, we don't want you. So he had done enough to make himself known. If you wanted to see a miracle, you could find out where Jesus and his group were going, and you could get to that town, and you could find someone. So we are not lacking biblical revelation. We just have a problem with the evil wickedness of man's heart toward the revelation. And that's what's in the text here. Three things to note here. They were looking for him for the wrong reason. So the Jews were looking for him at the feast, not to worship him. But I think here's what they wanted to do. Is he going to come do some of his stuff? 
Is he going to feed us? Is he going to do a miracle? So they probably were expecting him to show up and to do his thing. So they said to one another, where is he? You know, he always comes to the feast. He's, he's come to all these, where, where is he? And then they speak of Jesus in verse 12, and they don't affirm his glory. They say two things about him. He's just a good man. And others said, no, he's leading people astray. The purpose of the Gospel of John that we are looking at is that John painstakingly at the end of his life, wrote this gospel so that it would be absolutely clear in every culture, every age, every people group, every language, what tribe, whatever it is, that there would be a clear testimony as to the glory of who Jesus is. And I hope you've seen as we walk through the gospel of John, it's just unlike any book in the world in its revelation of the majesty and the glory of Jesus. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. The Apostle Paul had walked with the Lord for 25 years. He's in prison, in suffering, and he writes to a church that he started called at, at a city called Philippi. And he wrote these words after 25 years, Philippians 3.10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And watch this. And share in his sufferings. Sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. See, Paul says you can't exhaust the knowledge of Jesus. You can never find out enough. I just want to know more, and I want to know more, and I want to know more. So the last point this morning is this. 2,000 years ago at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a lot of opinions about Jesus, but they never arrived at the truth. And it's where we live today. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. But it seems to be a more rare thing to arrive at the truth of Jesus. And so they had a perspective of he's just a good man. No, he's not a good man. He's a deceiver. He's tricking the people. That's why the religious leaders are against him. And right in the midst of where a deep love of Christ should have been embraced and strong, strongly followed, people are fighting Christ over matters of faith and truth in Christ's nature. These past seven months as a pastor have been interesting. Um, I've talked to a number of my pastor friends. It's just you, you're almost in the middle. People are like, okay, you're irresponsible for meeting. No, you're responsible for meeting. You're irresponsible for not making people wear masks or you're being brave because you're not make, be, making people wear masks. And just just the... It's not been the, I was telling James, it's not been the most difficult time. It's just been an interesting time because it's like, it's like we, we have like hyper, hypercharged our opinions in COVID land. And it's just become that way. And I just, I just, I just want to pause at the end of this talk to say this to us. Opinions are opinions and truth is truth. And it's okay to have an opinion, but the opinion's got to get to truth. It's got to get to truth. And so in the text, there's just a lot of talking about Jesus, but not arriving at the truth. And as a matter of fact, in the last letter that Paul wrote, he, he wrote about this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. He said, there is, a, there is a group of people that are always learning and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And he writes, just as 
Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So let me just give you four quick statements, and you're going to go, okay, four more things, yeah, just four, just real quick. One, Christians, if you claim to be a Christ follower in this room this morning, we cannot ever oppose the truth. And we cannot oppose leaders who embrace biblical truth. Leaders in the church are not perfect. But if their aim is to proclaim the truth, don't oppose them like Janus and Jambres did of Moses. Moses was God's man. Secondly, if you oppose the truth, it will corrupt your mind. That's what Paul says here. It will corrupt your mind. Why do we live in a day and time where we think people can actually change genders? It's because we are corrupt in our mind. Or why do we think that we can say that homosexual marriage is okay with God? Because that's taught in churches. It's not. That is, that's there because there's a corruption of the mind about truth. Read Romans 1. Secondly, thirdly, if you oppose the truth, it disqualifies you to speak about the truth. It's what he says here. You are disqualified to speak about the truth. You must hold me and anybody else who stands here to proclaiming the truth, not man's words. You must demand it. And if I ever stop doing that, that I am disqualified from teaching the truth. The fourth thing is this, is eventually opposing the truth will be fully disclosed as folly. Now, a nation may go through hard, hard times. I lived in Europe that at one time loved God and great theological things were established in Europe. And I lived there for four years, and it's just sometimes walking around going, you people are silly in what you think and you believe. And the folly, the folly of opposing the truth is eventually seen. And we're going to finish with this. If you are always learning and never arriving at the truth, that is a false spiritual movement. It's not real. It doesn't arrive at the truth. Always learning, always moving, always looking like it's going somewhere. It never arrives at the right place. It cannot arrive at the right place. It is always hindered because it's a false movement. And you will never know the truth. Ever. You know what Jesus is going to say in John 8? If you know the truth, you know what it does to you? It sets you free. It sets you free. Okay, y'all ready to have your toes st- stepped on for a minute? Hi. In 2020, as we've been, I'll just throw my hand up, as we've been upset about masks, I want to tell you something that's happened in 2020. My wife has this app on her phone. It's a daily counter of what happens throughout the world, just the numbers, just just zip. At 9 o'clock last night, we went to the abortion one. Worldwide in 2020, 
at 9 p.m. on Saturday night. There were 33,908,178 abortions worldwide at 9 o'clock last night. By the time December the 31st comes, there will be 40 to 50 million children slaughtered on this planet in the year 2020. That's a world that opposes the truth and is corrupt in its mind. That thinks that's okay to take four sips inside a womb and rip baby's arms off. And we had a candidate this week, popular candidate this week in our nation when asked a question that if an eight-year-old girl wants to be a boy, is that okay? And the candidate said, we should support that. And I'm not against people who are confused about anything. My heart breaks for the broken, and I hope yours does too. And I'm not speaking judgment today. I'm just trying to point out we live in a day and time that is so corrupt in its mind that what's evil we call good and what's good we call evil. And I hope you let that sink in that at 9 o'clock last night, 33, almost 34 million abortions on the planet last night. And I was broken last night when my wife told me that. I held it together, but when she left, I was sitting at the table, and I put my head down on the table, and I cried because I've been more upset about masks at times than I have been about that. And I think this morning is a time to remind us that we're just not supposed to talk and mutter about Jesus. We're supposed to give our lives to Jesus and proclaim his majesty. He is the rock that doesn't move. He is the rock that doesn't move. And that's where we must stake our claim. So this week, in this very room, starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., there's going to be stations all over this room to pray. And I hope you take the time to get up, Take a break at lunch and come up here and pray. Because I think that's just where we are right now. We, we, we are in desperate need of pleading with God. For God to come and establish His truth in His people. Because I think revival doesn't start with the lost world. I think revival starts with God's people. It starts with us. And so... As they're muttering about Jesus as he's walking up to the temple, let's use that application to say it's the culture mutters about Jesus. And we want to say, no, he's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords. And he's the answer to the broken and the confused. He's the hope of the world. And let's embrace him as he embraces his people. Let's pray.